You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, 14 lectures, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 10, given in Leipzig on the 21st of November, 1910. During their beautiful association in friendship, which was of such significance for modern intellectual life, Goethe and Schiller exchanged works on which they were working, and when Schiller received from Goethe parts of title Wilhelm Meister, he wrote to Goethe, overwhelmed by the impression of the chapter he had just received, quote, Of this we can be sure. The poet is the only true human being, and the best philosopher is merely a caricature in comparison. Close quote. At the time, that might have sounded peculiar, but for us today, that is no longer the case. We put ourselves in Schiller's soul and are enlightened about the truth of his words when we measure them against the significant letter which Schiller wrote to Goethe shortly after their friendship had begun. Both had discussed nature and their view of the world in their wide-ranging discussions. Schiller now brings to expression in the letter I have just referred to how Goethe does not obtain his views by speculative means, but seeks the necessity in the totality of the phenomena of the world. Everything was contained in Goethe's intuition, and he had little cause to borrow from philosophy, which, however, had a lot to learn from him. Schiller, therefore, sees something in Goethe's way of looking at the world, in his inner attitude out of which he created his works, which introduces human beings to the secrets of existence in a particularly profound way. If we examine what takes place between Goethe and Schiller by way of thoughts and opinions, we can see how Schiller blossoms in Goethe's imagination, in the inner truth of Goethe's imagination. Schiller at the time wrote his series of letters titled On the Aesthetic Education of Man in which he set out how people, through their development, can become full human beings, something which exists in potential in each person as their higher human being. Schiller found something in Goethe's radiating imagination, which turns people into full human beings. He saw in it a way of living one's way to the thing which can enable a person truly to affiliate with the archetypal foundation of things. When we hear great intellects talk about imagination in this way, it is a different matter from the way that imagination is talked about today. Now, when it is contrasted with objective observation, it is as if the imagination is something arbitrary, which caused people to combine things in an arbitrary way. Bracket, there's a gap in shorthand note. Close bracket. If we remember that Goethe might be described as an expert in his research into nature, the following words are doubly relevant. Human beings strive 
to discover the secrets of nature and long for its worthy interpreter, art. Art and beauty are manifestations of secret laws of nature, which, without them, could never be fathomed. When the imagination mixes the way of thinking, which only arises from feelings and impulses, with other gains of the human soul, we have to admit that it sometimes leads away from truth. It is not appropriate for science and research. But, as the precursor of a higher cognitive ability, it points the way to hidden connections between things which one would not see without it. But for certain fields of life it is an absolute necessity that what is combined by the imagination is shown to be true through research and strict external proof. Accordingly, Goethe's words, or Schiller's position, appear to make it necessary that we determine in Goethe how he sees something in the imagination which offers truth in its content, in contrast to an arbitrary random play which we can describe as the fantastical play of the imagination. If we try to fathom the laws of nature scientifically, our observations force us to make a judgment. That is not the case with the imagination. Certain ideas or thoughts must be connected by inner necessity if they are to be justified as truth. Something has to be there which guides them in a particular direction, inwardly, from one thought to the next. If we hear great intellects speak about such truths, we may certainly be permitted to measure their findings against the methods which are used by spiritual research and which lead to the truths which have often been discussed. These methods are the so-called clairvoyant ones, which enable information about the facts and beings of the spiritual world. In presenting them, we will also touch on the lower forms of clairvoyance, but briefly at most, because they can never lead to real goals. In contrast, we will make the methods and significance of higher clairvoyance obtained through appropriate training the subject of our reflections. Some who only know low-level clairvoyance, which may occur as somnambulism, consider it to be an illness. There are states in which the person has filled their soul life with images from other worlds. It is a kind of sleep, perhaps of such a minor degree that the layperson considers it as being fully awake. When such a, in quotes, clairvoyant, perceives images in a sleep-like state, they can sometimes offer astonishing and peculiar things. They can be of a prophetic nature. Such a person can say things about illnesses before they have occurred, or, what appears even more astonishing to the layperson, they know precisely to indicate what will remedy them. In such states, the person concerned has a different world before them. Anyone who denies this has not done the research. But what is obtained through such low-level clairvoyance is not the subject of our reflections today, but what is obtained by way of trained clairvoyance. Clairvoyants starting out take each step consciously with strict control of themselves, the only question is this. How should we think of the development of such clairvoyance? 
if we want to define this in its essence, we can quite justifiably compare it with the means of external research. In science, the researcher investigates the secrets of nature with the help of instruments. Trained clairvoyants also work with an instrument. It is indeed a very complicated instrument, without which they could not research anything. Their instrument is simply themselves, not in their everyday state, but only once they have transformed their cognitive ability into a different soul constellation through spiritual scientific methods and have created new organs, that is, when they can say things out of their own experience. It cannot be the case that the external senses are the end of all knowledge. Each new organ opens up new content in the environment. Hidden worlds can be around us. For the trained clairvoyant, the otherwise hidden world becomes just as real as the external one. Just as, for the blind person, after an operation, a whole world streams toward the clairvoyant, which is his or her experience. We must not think that this can be achieved by external means. I can, of course, only give an indication of how it happens. I hope at a later time to be able to tell you more about the way that such research is undertaken. People will be able to observe most truthfully when they take in what the sensory world tells them without being influenced by subjective effects. It is a matter of people giving nature the opportunity to express itself. The less subjective combination is involved, the better. Human beings cannot avoid thinking about the external world from which they obtain their observations, but it is certainly not the case that all their concepts, ideas, and thinking flow into them from the external world. The essential things they nevertheless obtain from their interior. That can be seen, for example, in the way that modern thinking came to conceive of the structure of the star system. Copernicus and Galileo saw the same thing which the eye, E-Y-E, could see since time immemorial. But the laws were only established by them. Copernicus added new things to the old observational material and thus did the vital work. The same applies to orthodox Darwinism. Similar things were observed before Darwin and Haeckel, but they approached these things in a new frame of mind. We have to be clear that concepts and ideas are not what streams into us from outside, but we have to produce them themselves. If you sail out into the ocean where you cannot see any land, the sky appears to rest on the surface of the sea in a circular form. You will only understand why this is so if you can construct in your thinking the circle around the point in the middle. In this way you can obtain an understanding of all laws, and then reality has to fit with that. Kepler would never have been able to discover the trajectory of the planets if previously elliptical trajectories had not appeared in his spirit. In this way we carry our ideas to the external things which tell us. We will fulfill what you have thought. And in this way you obtain an insight that the same thing which lives in your soul underlies this external sensory world as its laws.
Now, think for a moment that a person tries to focus on a thought which has been constructed in their own soul. If that person manages to abstain from all external observation and direct all their internal attention to the thought, a soul process takes place which is described as concentration. The human soul first has to keep to something which lives in the soul and focus on that with all its strength. Now, it is, of course, not sufficient to do that once. It has to be repeated frequently. It is not effective to focus on images in the thinking which come from outside. Now, there is experience in this field. Advice is available as to which type of concentration is best for developing the soul forces. There are certain core propositions. We do not need to be convinced of their reality from the beginning. The greater the lack of preconceptions, the better. One instruction says, for example, fill your soul with a certain content. Focus completely on this soul content. You do not need to believe in it, but must allow it to work in you. Concentrate on it, and you will find that you achieve an effect in your soul through the content. It may be that external truth does not apply to the proposition. That is neither here nor there. The important thing is the force which acts in the soul. You will see that experiences will set in with constant repetition. Symbolic images are particularly effective. I would like to recall one in particular, the profoundly significant symbol of the black cross with the roses. Here the aim is to place the abstract meaning of the rose cross before our soul, Goethe's, quote, dying and becoming, close quote, namely the requirement that in developing our soul we have to ascend above the things of the sensory world so that it disappears and dies off around us. Those whose soul remains empty is only a, quote, somber guest on this dark earth, close quote, If you are successful and you are quite sure that something higher is growing out of the hidden depths of your soul, then you have become new in higher worlds, dying in the cross, resurrection in the roses. That is what lies in the symbol of the rose cross. A spiritual element lives everywhere in the mineral and in the plant world, and we can sense that the underlying spiritual element is the origin of the physical. The external world is ultimately only the physiognomy of the spiritual world. The human soul is like steel or flint. It sparks divine spiritual content in the life of the human soul. It is a matter of finding the right symbol. Someone might well say, you can think up all kinds of things about what the rose cross is supposed to mean that is neither here nor there for the researcher. When we determine a law of nature in physics, that tells us something, science says. The rose cross tells us nothing, but that is not the point. Symbols are most effective when they are multi-layered in their meaning. We put ourselves in a pure interactivity of soul, and in using the support of the symbol to have a starting point, we concentrate in our soul on the symbol. Let us look at what the soul does consciously here. That is the important point. 
What is at work in human beings are forces which are appropriate for awakening what is slumbering, experiences which give us the guarantee that we are dealing with an inner reality when human beings obtain the feeling actually the cross was only a kind of bridge. Now I have received something in my soul, something quite different which arises in my soul, and experience which I cannot obtain from external things. Initially the pupil does not know whether he or she is faced with feta morgana or reality. It is important to develop additional abilities, because even what has just been described is still a detour for the clairvoyant. It is images. The feeling sets in on the further training path. The important thing is that what comes to expression in the images. If you press on your eye, EYE, or stimulate it with an electric current, light can appear as a result of the inner constellation of the eye. That is broadly what it is like when the images appear. They flash through the soul like spiritual lightning. You know that when you face an object, it is not produced by your eye, but communicates itself to your eye. The same thing happens in the spirit. The visionary knows now with equal assurance that he or she has not made the object, but that the object communicates itself through his or her inner organs. Indeed, the way that the images are now experienced is an expression of objective facts. In the same way that we distinguish between external imagination and perception, it is necessary for the visionary to maintain his or her healthy senses, because in hardly any other area is confusion so easily possible than in inner experience. That is why other things have to occur in parallel. If the visionary could practice only what has just been described, he or she might go insane, believing that they could make reality be magicked from appearance through their personality. It is necessary for human beings to learn to renounce everything in experiencing the higher spiritual world that is connected with their wishes and inclinations. Human beings currently behave differently psychologically, They might correct the external sensory impressions, but it is all too easy for feelings and subjective inclinations to be involved. An experience of spiritual reality must be preceded by renouncing any wish that something might be like this or like that. Objective spiritual things can only be experienced once any sympathy has been excluded. There is another essential factor. For those who are guided on the path to clairvoyance expertly, not amateurishly, who learn to see in a way that accords with reality, it is of great value that they do not embark on that path without certain prerequisites. It is a difficult path. We therefore have to acquire truths beforehand, information from those who have already undertaken such research. We can also embark on the path with less knowledge, but then the soul world remains impoverished, its content is compressed like fixed ideas. That is how the clairvoyance 
come about to then, for example, believe that they have become one with God, describe Him, and so on. When those kinds of clairvoyants describe the higher worlds, their descriptions appear superficial. But for those who approach the higher worlds with the tested experience of the spiritual researcher, a diverse content of those worlds will appear to them, and everything external, in contrast, will turn out to be a small extract of the big world. People who make those experiences their own know that they are not deceived by what they experience there. They can perceive spiritually with the same assurance as in the external world of the senses. That is trained clairvoyance. What now has to happen for these higher senses to be developed? For spiritual science, human beings are not just their external physical body, but they also have the otherwise invisible etheric body and the astral body, the bearer of pleasure and pain, for their higher vision. You know what sleep represents for spiritual research. The physical and the etheric body have remained in bed, while the astral body and I, capital, act from outside on the physical body. On waking, the astral body returns into the physical and etheric body. The sensory world reappears anew. Thus, sleep is when the astral body and I leave the physical body. How, then, can human beings hear and see the sensory world? With eyes and ears, otherwise the world would be without color, light, or sound. When the astral body leaves the physical body, it is in the spiritual world, but it does not possess any organs. If it had such organs, it could perceive the spiritual world in the same way that it perceives its environment in the physical. If therefore human beings are to observe the spiritual world, they have to develop spiritual senses. That is done through the methodical training of the soul life. When the astral body leaves such a person who is trained in accordance with spiritual methods, the latter is in quite a different position than under normal circumstances. It is as if what was previously a chaotic mass in the astral body structures itself and develops organs. What was previously a nebulous, smoky mass becomes beautifully formed. That takes a long time. This process has for a long time been called catharsis, cleansing or purification. The inner human being is then cleansed of drives, lusts, and passions. That is the first stage. This first stage is followed by a second. When human beings return in the morning to their physical and etheric envelope, the outer organs have the stronger forces which drown out the subtle new tones of the inner organs. They are always present, but weak for as long as they are drowned out by the forces of the etheric body in the sensory organs. Human beings subsequently learn to handle their inner organs so that they can see the spiritual perceptions alongside the sensory perceptions. This process is called illumination, photismus. These are thoroughly real processes which are experienced. Step by step, the person applies in every detail the method which has been indicated to train himself or herself to become an instrument of perception. 
The training is intended to give their inner human being organs. Just as nature has perfected the external human being, the developmental path is continued and the person builds on what nature has started. When human beings obtain insight into the spiritual in this way, this is due to the fact that their inner human being has learned to govern the physical and etheric body. Human beings have become their own master. Initially they obtain mastery over their etheric body. In the trained clairvoyant, this happens in such a way that the etheric body adapts its forces to the astral body. It becomes elastic. If clairvoyance on occasion occurs by itself in pathological states, that is caused by something else. Although it is subject to the same laws, it is uncontrollable. When human beings are under particular influences or when they are ill, the etheric body can become partially or completely free of the physical body. It can be loosened. That is not normal. Then human beings have an etheric body which is not tied to the physical body, as is normally the case, and it is therefore easy to handle. In contrast, the spiritual pupil strengthens the astral body and thereby helps it to master the etheric body. When illness occurs, a part of the etheric body can become free, which is then handled by the astral body. Then, because this state is based on the same principles, some people can sometimes have real insights into the spiritual world, but they are not reliable. This is not the path by which the strict results of spiritual research are obtained. The question is sometimes asked, how can a pathological process produce extrasensory perceptions? Health and knowledge do not need to follow the same path. That is not a contradiction, but it is not a recommendation either. In any event, we are given an insight into the facts of the higher world. Just as we enjoy the world which surrounds us, we find in the spiritual world that which explains the sensory world to us. The information from spiritual researchers is based on processes which they have experienced themselves. In telling about it, they communicate facts of a world which can also be understood by ordinary reason, whereas our soul world is otherwise determined by what happens at a physical level. That the image of the rose can have an effect on me, for example, is possible because the forces of the rose stream toward me. It is the same in the spiritual field. Trained clairvoyants experience the spiritual external world in their soul life. They say to themselves, the sensory world is determined in its laws through beings whose work is revealed to me. I see how a blossom appears to me as it is worked on out of the spirit, out of spiritual foundations. I have to make sacrifices in my soul life in order to let the world of the higher spiritual beings stream toward me. Imagine that this world exists and is at work and that human beings could enter it. And around them is this world which the clairvoyant can see. It acts on human beings as a determining force which they do not see, but which flows toward them in an unconscious way. 
The clairvoyant is not satisfied with seeing human beings only as they are structured externally. The imagination can also work as a soul force, which is fertilized by the spiritual worlds. There we have the real foundation of the imagination and can understand Schiller's words characterizing what is created in this way. Thus we can understand it when Goethe says, there is an imagination which is determined inwardly. There is speculation which combines and there is imagination which is fertilized by the forces which the clairvoyant sees. Schiller's whole life at the time meant that he could have no idea of spiritual science, but he did have an idea and could feel that it is justified when Goethe ascribed the ability to the imagination to fathom certain secrets. No matter how many external facts reason gives us, real imagination can be much truer. Human beings are predisposed to ascend into the worlds of the spirit because the corresponding abilities are slumbering in each person. Each person will also achieve that, no matter how many lives it takes. Until then, they can let themselves be stimulated by art in which it is not just the sensory world which comes to expression, but the creative spirit itself, which has passed through the medium of the imagination. The latter is the external image of the former. Thus we may say that imagination and clairvoyance are set for human beings to participate in spiritual life as a great goal, as something which some have already achieved and which is superior to all other existence. Trained clairvoyance leads human beings into the higher worlds. Its representative in the sensory world is the imagination. That is why it is of exceptional importance among the human soul forces. The imagination is the representative of clairvoyance in the sensory world. The end of Lecture 10